Welcome to episode 34 of History of the Marine Corps, The Wooden Horse of Troy. Our last episode went over a few significant events during the Quasi-War. President Washington met an untimely death, and the country went into a deep mourning. We discussed a phenomenal performance by the Constellation, followed by the Marines as they found their new home in Washington, D.C., and introduced a young Marine Corps band. This week's episode will close the chapter on the Quasi-War. We'll take a look at the Marines' amphibious landing, some small skirmishes where Marines' musket fire repelled enemy forces, the signing of the peace treaty, and the response from Congress after the end of the war. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The new Marine Corps quickly made a name for itself once they arrived in the nation's new capital. The Marine Band, commanded by William Farr, the first drum major, had become extremely popular in Washington, D.C. They often played at official receptions, which led to the Marine Band becoming known as the President's Own. Marines were also showing their worth during the Quasi-War. They served on board most naval vessels, and as a result, participated in every battle fought during the war. As we discussed during the last two episodes, Lieutenant Bartholomew Clinch and his Marines on board the Constellation played a prominent role against the capture and near destruction of a couple of French frigates. The Marines fired 2,376 musket cartridges during the battle with La Vengeance. Keep in mind the difficulty it was to reload these weapons. The amount of shots fired is a good indication of the contributions Marines played during the battle. Lieutenant Clinch was a phenomenal officer, and many witnesses on board during the campaign thought his actions stood out against any other officer on board. Captain Truxton wrote a special tribute of his heroic behavior to Commandant Burroughs and recommended a promotion. Truxton would receive a medal for his battle and included the Marines in his congratulatory address. Clinch and his Marines received honorable mentions in Virginia's and Washington, D.C.'s newspapers. An officer on board the Constellation wrote a letter praising Clinch and his Marines. He said through Clinch's behavior and leadership, his Marines were amongst some of the bravest, and the action by the Marines caused the French to retreat. Multiple skirmishes happened throughout the year, and every Marine Guard force showed the same tenacity. Marines on board the Norfolk defended an attack by Haitian pirates. The extremely accurate musket fire by the Marines caused the pirates to retreat. Lieutenant Nathan Sheridine and his Marines on board the Experiment would see a similar attack, and the conclusion was the same. Musket fire by Marines took a heavy toll on the pirates. Council General Edward Stevens was on the Experiment during the attack. He stated, quote, the fire of the Marines continued with great steadiness and activity. We at length succeeded in driving them off after a smart action of near three hours. Unquote. Marines on board the Boston would finally settle the score. In March of 1800, the American ship would engage and destroy many of the pirates' barges. The value of Marines wasn't a secret. 
Secretary of the Navy Benjamin Stoddard understood the importance of Marines, and he urged Congress to increase the authorized strength of the Marine Corps. He wasn't alone, and many commanding officers of the Navy encouraged the same. Captain Alexander Murray wrote Stoddard, supporting the Marines, calling them his brother officers, and saying that they are usually healthier, incredible behind the musket, quick learners, and better trained than the Army. Murray suggested the Marine strength should double. He thought this size would allow for plenty of Marines at sea and still have enough to develop artillery and infantry units separate from the Army. Many naval officers supported this incredible foresight into the future of the Corps. However, Congress did not approve the new strength and only agreed to increase the highest rank in the Marine Corps to Lieutenant Colonel. On April 22, 1800, Congress, for the first time, created the grade of Commandant and promoted Burroughs to his official rank of Lieutenant Colonel Commandant. Burroughs had a skill for surrounding himself with loyal, competent officers. Marine Corps leadership during the Quasi-War was superb, and the professionalism demanded by Burroughs caused many to see the Marine Corps in their own light. The Marine Corps was starting to get recognized as a military branch, and new policies helped govern the organization. Multiple new acts were established to support America's new military. On May 10th, the President approved the Naval Appropriation Act, which authorized a budget of $162,405.22 for the Marine Corps. If you're interested in the itemized budget, I'll have a list up on the episode page of historyofthemarinecorps.com. While the politics and administration were happening in D.C., Marines at sea were still fighting the French, and they were about to get into one of the most daring and mind-blowing battles during the war. In early May, the USS Constitution sailed the Caribbean searching for any French vessels. As they cruised by a small harbor on the Spanish side of Santo Domingo, they saw the Sandwich, a ship previously owned by the British, but seized by the French. A Spanish battery safely protected her. The Sandwich was a fast ship, and she had many qualities the United States could use. Commodore Silas Talbot of the Constitution wanted that ship. He planned a cutting out operation. Cutting out is a naval tactic that was popular during the 18th century. The concept was simple. Advance towards the target, seize it, and sail away. However, the execution was complicated and dangerous. This tactic involved stealth and often took place at night. This was a high-risk, high-reward approach. If successful, the crew of the Constellation were guaranteed a prize. If not, the results could be devastating. Talbot decided to deploy the Marines per their mission. He needed intelligence and sent Naval Lieutenant Hull to recon the area for more information about the ship and the defenses. Just how any other good story starts, it was a dark and stormy night, and Hull boarded one of the Constellation's cutters and headed towards the Sandwich. The French ship was stripped of her rigging and was anchored directly under the guns of a small battery on shore. The Constellation was a formidable ship. Taking the Sandwich by force would have been an easy task, but Talbot wanted to capture the vessel without damaging her. This would allow the ship to join the United States Navy. His strategy consisted of sending Marines and sailors on the sloop Sally towards the Sandwich, while another group of Marines would attack from land. 
Marines and sailors were commanded by Hull. The Sally wasn't in the best shape. It was a well-traveled ship that was weather-beaten and damaged from her time at sea. The Sally traded in the West Indies for years and wasn't considered a threat. She's been in and out of that port many times, and sending her in again wouldn't create suspicion. Marine Captain Daniel Carmick would lead the Marines on land. The mission started with the Constitution and the Sally meeting far out at sea. Ninety Marines and sailors boarded the sloop. Once on board, they slowly made their way towards the target. Around midnight, the lookouts on the Sally saw a bright flash, followed by the hum of a cannonball flying overhead. There was very little the American sloop could do. If the shot came from a French frigate, they wouldn't be able to compete. With very little option, they patiently waited. Soon, the Marines heard the pounding of oars and the splashing of waves. They saw the silhouette of a man, and he called to the Sally from the darkness. The Americans threw him a rope, and the mysterious man came on board. It turned out to be a British officer. He was expecting to see a handful of American merchantmen, so you can imagine his surprise when he came on board and 90 armed Marines and sailors surrounded him. Naturally, he was shocked, and he asked the commander what ship he was on. Lieutenant Hull filled them in on the mission. The British officer was a little disappointed with Hull's answer. The reason the British were there was to take back their ship. Only they planned to wait for the sandwich to leave port before attacking. They spoke for a few minutes, and the British officer returned to his ship. Hull continued his course, and the Sally reached the harbor on the morning of May 11th. The Marines and sailors prepared for the attack. All but one officer and most of the crew hid below deck. The Sally ran alongside the sandwich. The Sally floated so close to the French ship that someone shouted to the Americans, Look out there, or you'll run foul of us. Marines and sailors were cooped up below deck for 12 hours. The shout from the deck acted as a signal. The helm of the Sally was put down, and the ship moved alongside the sandwich. As soon as she was in position, a flood of men came pouring over the sides and completely surprised the French. Carmick reported that the men went on board like devils. The marines and sailors drove the crew below, and there was no resistance to this attack. The sandwich was captured within five minutes. That's unheard of. Captain Carmick later reported that the time he spent hidden away in the sally made him think of the wooden horse at Troy. The French ship was captured, but the mission wasn't over. Americans still faced the threat of the battery on shore. The Marines were up, and they waded to the beach in water up to their necks. Once on land, they traveled throughout the battery and spiked the cannons. It was a quick job, and Carmick and his Marines returned to the sandwich within an hour. When the Marines came back, they prepared for a retaliation and were stationed throughout the ship. Intelligence stated that 500 men would attack, but fortunately, that attack never came. The actions by the Marines and sailors that day were spectacular, and the sandwich joined the Constitution the next morning. When the news reached the United States, the nation was ecstatic. However, the battle was controversial. Spain was a neutral nation, and disregarding the neutrality of the country violated a few treaties and laws. 
However, Spain wasn't completely innocent. On paper, Spain was neutral, but Talbot and other naval officers found Spanish pirates mixed in with the French pirates during some of these engagements. But the protests from Spain won the argument, and the crew had to give up the ship and pay damages to the injured party. Every battle during this war was either at sea or on foreign land. The United States Army didn't see action during this time, so later that month, the president approved legislation that reduced their size. The Marines took advantage of this opportunity and recruited the best soldiers. This recruitment couldn't have happened at a better time. In the last episode, we discussed the battle between the American frigate Constellation and the French frigate La Vengeance. The Vengeance barely made it to Curaçao, and she was in horrible shape. Curaçao was a Dutch island, and the governor refused to help repair the ship. In response, the French sent a large military force from Guadeloupe to take the island. The Dutch weren't the only ones living there. Several American citizens and their property suffered from this raid. The French took the entire island, except for the fort, into which the Dutch and the Americans withdrew. In response to this attack, the United States sent the Merrimack and the Patapsco to help protect the island. By the time the two ships arrived, multiple French vessels filled the area. The Patapsco was reinforced with 20 Marines from the Merrimack, and led by First Lieutenant David Stickney. She was sent into the harbor to relieve some of the pressure of the forts. She entered the harbor on the 23rd and was fired upon from the windows and roofs of nearby houses. Two Americans were injured during the attack, but the Patapsco continued her course. She sailed within pistol shot of the fort and immediately fired her cannons, and the Marines joined in with their muskets. The musket fire was continuous, and for more than two hours the Marines fired an endless amount of shots at the French. Marines continued until the gunshots from the French stopped. Random shots were fired throughout the night and into the next day, but it wasn't a threat. No Americans died during this fight, and only two were injured. The following day, 2nd Lieutenant James Middleton landed on the island and helped with the defenses. Him and the Marines were positioned at the front of the assault and defended against the main force of the enemy's attack. This time, the French had the continuous fire and constantly attacked defenses, but the Marines didn't budge and they successfully stood their ground. The French continued to fire throughout the day, but at night, they quickly boarded their ships and retreated. The next day, the Merrimack entered the harbor, and the British warship Nereid took possession. Marines and sailors on the Patapsco received commendations for their enthusiasm and ethical conduct. These two battles were the last significant conflicts of the war. There were a few small skirmishes for the rest of the year, and Marines were instrumental in the capture of those French ships. The accuracy of the small arms fire by Marines complemented the Navy well, and this team assured victory. American Marines and sailors of the Quasi-War dominated the sea. Throughout the war, only one American warship was captured by the French. That was a retaliation. The French lost a total of 80. 68 of those ships were condemned and sold. Eight were released as illegal captures, three returned, and the last one was the Retaliation, which was recaptured. 
The war would creep into 1801, but little action would occur. On February 3rd, the Senate ratified the Treaty of Peace with France, and it was announced by the President 15 days later. Marine 2nd Lieutenant Thomas Barclay carried the Treaty of Peace himself. He sailed from Baltimore on March 21, 1801. With the war over, French prisoners were sent home as well, and the Marines played an essential part in this duty. They escorted the prisoners in Frederick, Maryland to Washington, D.C. The detachment of Marines was led by 2nd Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon. Remember that name, you'll be hearing more of him. Burroughs paid the captain of a sloop $552 to return the 69 prisoners to France. The captain requested a Marine guard to help with the transport and generously waived the charge for travel and food. They made sail on May 18, 1801. If you ask people about this war, chances are most of them never heard of it. It's a relatively unknown war for most of America. American deaths weren't high, and damage to American property was minimal, with the exception of the merchant ships. However, this was one of the most critical periods for United States naval forces. France's maritime hostilities forced Congress to react, and the Department of the Navy and the United States Marine Corps were established. This war also solidified the partnership between the Navy and the Marine Corps. Both services fought prestigiously, and their reputation won America's respect and the respect from other nations. America was a new country, but there was no doubt that her Marines and sailors were well trained. This war also displayed the Marines as a separate entity. During the months following the war, Marines would perfect their tactics on land, while officers perfected their role at sea. But with the peace treaty signed, Congress decided that a navy this large isn't really needed anymore. The Naval Peace Establishment of 1801 was passed in March. It authorized the sale of all naval vessels, except for the frigates United States, Constitution, President, Chesapeake, Philadelphia, Constellation, Congress, New York, Boston, Essex, Adams, John Adams, and the General Green. This act also established rations for the Navy and the Marine Corps. This chart will be posted on historyofthemarinecorps.com as well if you want to take a look. Only six frigates were kept active, and they were manned with two-thirds of the crew. Each ship had minimal naval personnel and a Marine Guard of one sergeant, one corporal, and eight Marines per frigate. This act didn't specifically call out reducing the size of the Marine Corps, but with the Army and the Navy manpower minimized, it seemed inevitable that the Marines would be next. The Secretary of the Navy argued with Congress on maintaining a robust Marine Corps. He explained that Marines were undoubtedly one of the most useful corps belonging to the United States. He called the Marines experienced, disciplined, and always prepared for action. The nation was still in debt, and this war didn't help the situation. Congress was concerned about the cost, so Stoddart provided the wartime expenses of the Marine Corps, which was $270,957.98 per year. He also provided an estimate on peacetime cost. That figure was reduced to $207,310. A proposed provision authorized the President to discharge any part of the Marine Corps which may be unnecessary for the naval service.
This provision passed the House 53 to 40, but failed to get into the bill. As Adams left office and Jefferson came in, policy started to change. Thomas Jefferson advocated a policy of economy and a reduction of the national debt. He sold unused ships, stopped new construction of naval vessels, discharged every naval constructor, and had most of the retained frigates dismantled to save on cost. The Secretary of the Navy was new as well, and Robert Smith replaced Stoddard in this role. Jefferson directed Smith to reduce the enlisted strength of the Marine Corps to about 450 men. According to the United States Marine Corps, the number of Marines killed in action during this war was 6, and wounded is 11. But just like the American Revolution, these numbers might be lower than reality. In August of 1800, Sergeant Simon Williams and his Marines served on board the Pickering. The ship set sail from port, but she never returned. It was lost at sea and most likely went down during a rough storm in September of 1800. But regardless of the outcome, Marines and sailors on board the Pickering never returned, and they should be included in those numbers. When Thomas Jefferson took office, the United States had given nearly $2 million to the Muslim state of Morocco, Tunis, Algiers, and Tripoli. The entire amount was either given as ransom for prisoners or as a bribe to permit American merchantmen to sail in the Mediterranean. The United States wouldn't be at peace for long, and the reduction of Marines caused them to enter the next war with the reduced force. Join us next week as we start laying the groundwork for the Barbary Wars. Thanks for listening. Next week will be an exciting one. We're getting into the Barbary Wars. I served as a Marine security guard while I was in, and the Barbary Wars helped establish the Marine Corps relationship with the Department of State. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.